So, um, yeah, this is different for me, for us all in this day that we're in. I, I just was, uh, the attention might drew to this background here about the night. But we know the light is coming, but this is all set up for, the, for our time as we come into Advent, celebrating uh, our Lord and Savior. Would you join me as we open in time of prayer? Lord, we come to you in your strength. We want to put on the armor of God. We want to put on the helmet of salvation. We want to shod our feet with the gospel of peace. We want to put on the breastplate of righteousness and the belt of truth. We want to lift up the shield of faith to deflect the flaming arrows of the enemy. And we want to take out of our sheath the sword of the spirit, which is your word. And we want to proclaim your word today so that you would be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So Anthony asked me uh, if I would do a message in this series, and it's on marriage and sexual intimacy, just a small topic. So I'm trying to see if I can distill all the things that come into this, these two areas and share uh, what the Lord has been showing me over the many years. I believe that the healthiest expression of human sexuality is the union of a husband and life, uh, wife in marriage. In Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, in its first two chapters, it says, and I par paraphrase, in the beginning God created man and woman, they became one flesh, they were naked and not ashamed. What are these verses saying about sexuality? These verses, in essence, describe foundationally that sexuality is part of the creation of God and there's no shame. Sexuality and sexual intimacy between a man and a woman were designed by God during creation and we see this term, one flesh, many times in the Bible, referring to the sexual union of two persons. We also see in Genesis 2.24 that there was no shame, that they were not ashamed of their sexual act together as husband and wife. Sex is good. The most profound and ultimate combination of God's creation was the marriage relationship. The Bible then describes in the next chapter, in chapter three, the fall, where Adam and Eve sinned and disobeyed God. There were consequences to this original sin, and it had an impact on sexuality. We see in Genesis 3, 7, right after they had eaten that forbidden fruit, then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. The realization that they had referred to in this passage indicates that Adam and Eve were now ashamed of their nakedness, and they acted by covering themselves up with fig leaves. Now we see Adam and Eve now designing their own way to deal with their sinfulness and their relationship with each other. 
They are making their own way to get things right with God. We then begin to see them hiding. They go out into the garden and they hide. We see shame entering in due to that sin and how it is carried through the generations of humans to impact our own relationships with God and each other. Then in Genesis 3, 9, God goes out into the garden. He calls out to Adam and Eve, and he says, where are you? God searches and finds them with his grace and love and provides them with a way back to them relationally. So this is a core attribute, I believe, of God, that he wants to have a relationship with us. It's a central truth of the Christian faith. And it all revolves around the triune God, our God. The Trinity describes and proclaims the importance of the relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Our God is relational. He desires us to be in relationship with him and with each other. So now we come to the marriage relationship. It's core to God as well. Let's talk about the importance of the marriage relationship as it relates to this relational attribute of God. Marriage displays a covenant and a commitment relationship between a man and a woman, just like God made a covenant and a committed relationship to us, his people. God holds marriage in high regard. And actually, it's revealed its importance throughout the scriptures. So, so much so that we see pictures of it, and it's repeatedly seen in the Bible. And God even goes deeper into this truth by showing us that he gets married too. He marries us, his people. Uh, Steve Masterson, my longtime mentor, writes in his training materials, and I quote, God gets married. Marriage is far more about God and his heart for us than it is about ourselves. Now, that's a pretty crazy statement at first glance, that God gets married. So what is Steve and I saying? Let's read on. God understood our need for a role model, an example for what marriage is to be like, and what its ultimate purpose is. He didn't just give us an instruction manual about marriage in the Bible and make it a manual type thing that we can just read and do. God provided something far more significant and practical. God infused marriage with truth, with purpose, and with meaning by choosing to initiate and pursue getting married himself. So we see this theme, this picture, right through the Bible, right from Genesis, right through the, to the book in Revelation, the last book. It gives us pictures, and it describes God and how God reveals marriage between him, the groom, and his people, the bride. And this is an intentional and planned order from God to us. So God begins to make a covenant with his chosen people, the Jews, in the Old Testament, out of all the people, groups, and nations, God chooses them to become his wife 
and he is the husband. In Hosea chapter 2, verse 16, it says, In that day, declares the Lord, you will call on me my husband. In Jeremiah 2, 2 it says, The word of the Lord came to me. Go and proclaim in the hearing of Jerusalem, I remember the devotion of your youth. How as a bride you loved me. And then we move to the New Testament. Christ becomes our bridegroom, and his bride is the church, us. So in Ephesians 5, 31 and 32, it says, For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The two will become one flesh. And this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. So we see these pictures infused in marriage and they are infused in our marriage with eternal significance, purpose, meaning, and a destiny. So my purpose here today is to give you a brief picture of marriage, that it's much more than just a ceremony declaring the union of two people. It is core to our understanding of God and his relationship to us. Therefore, it's very important to him. I would like to also share one more core truth of marriage and sexual intimacy. That truth comes from what we've just read in Ephesians 5. This is a profound mystery. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. It's the mystery of oneness in marriage. And when we look at the mystery of oneness, we must explore it in the context of the Holy Trinity. The Bible teaches that God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they coexist as three separate persons who are co-equal, co-eternal, yet they're one in nature. The Trinity reveals that God is relational, and he wants to reveal that mystery of oneness of the Trinity by choosing to create us in his image, in the likeness of man and woman. And this is part of the uniqueness of humans, and it's our distinction between animals. And it impacts sexuality as well. The sexuality of humans is very different from animals for this very specific way. We are created in God's image. Animals aren't. This oneness transcends in the, our spirit and our soul as humans, and it's integral in our marriage. The trinity of marriage is God, the husband and wife, and it is, makes the marriage between the husband and wife more than just two bodies. I have had uh, the picture, this, this graphic that I'm going to have put up on the screen here, it kind of encompasses what I've been talking about so far. It involves saying that our marriages involve more than just physically. It's spiritual, it involves our souls. And this is true love a love that God wants and commands. Scripture talks about love the Lord God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. And it is God's love that creates marriage. This is true intimacy. And for, ma- for that matter, it also connects and is related to sexual intimacy. Sexual intimacy involves all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. Sexual intimacy involves our emotions. It involves our spirits. And yes, there's the physical aspects as well. Within a marriage relationship, God desires that a husband and wife have true sexual intimacy. I like to describe intimacy with this phrase. Into me, you see. And if we can put that graphic back up, I just wanted to kind of give you, again, is it just encompasses all that I've said so far. This means I choose to be open and vulnerable to my spouse, and I let her see within me. I express my emotions, my thoughts, my desires, and allow God's spirit to move me closer in relationship with my spouse. This transparency is actually beyond our humanness at times. It is supernatural. And we need God in our relationship, not just two of us. And it involves our souls. And as believers, we have Christ within us, his spirit. So we see that whole dynamic played out in that graphic in our lives sexually as well. That is oneness. That is the same kind of intimacy God wants with us. The back and forth of knowing each other deeply and well. Sexual intimacy profoundly is about the spirit, the soul, the body, and because it is love. A love that God creates and calls out in marriage. Uh, Let us uh, not relegate sexual intimacy to just a physical act. If that were to say, that the case, we'd be not indifferent than animals. But we're an, we are God's image bearers, man and woman, designed to display God's image in this world. With this in mind, it's no wonder that there is evil and enemy forces that want to destroy God's image, his union with us and our union in marriage. God's plan is, ma- is maintaining his relationship and oneness in marriage and in intimacy is being opposed. These opposing forces can be framed in three ways. And again, I have a graphic that shows in very simple ways the devil, the world, and the flesh. I would like to focus on the devil and his strategy to destroy marriages and sexual intimacy within us. I allude to the other two forces, the world and the flesh, but I won't spend a lot of time talking about them. I would say they all work together and the chief orchestrator is the devil. We don't talk a lot about the devil, but he's there. He's the opposing force. He tries, tried from the very beginning of time to distort and destroy God's design and the image of creation, especially related to marriage. In Ephesians 6.2, it says, But our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
not against the rulers, not against authorities, not against the powers of this dark world, or against, it's against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I address this force, the devil, first, because it is not people, the flesh and blood, that I oppose or judge when I talk about sexuality. Some would say that Jesus' followers are against sex, and that, that maybe God's against sex. Actually, God created sex, and sex is very much about God and his created order, as I shared before. Remember, Adam and Eve, the first humans, were, the, were in the Garden of Eden, and they were naked and not ashamed. Sex is good. And the Bible has a lot to say about sex, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now the enemy, he uses his own trinity, I'll call it, to counteract the Holy Trinity. And these are isolation, secrecy, and silence. If the devil can bring about these three elements into relationship, he can begin to destroy a relationship and undermine intimacy. Strong relationships, especially marriages, need openness, transparency, vulnerability, and communication with each other. And if the enemy can isolate us and break down the oneness that God designed or create an environment where we feel isolated in our marriage relationship, he can begin to divide and compromise our intimacy with each other. Remember, the devil is a deceiver, and he will use the tactic of isolation to falsely accuse our spouse of something that has been hold, held back from each other. The tactics of silence and secrecy can work along to develop isolation within a relationship. I've seen it in my own relationships and in those that I've been involved with to redress relational struggles and breakdowns. I personally have kept secrets and maintained silence to cover up my own sexual brokenness in my life. However, it doesn't have to be sexual in nature to be damaging in our relationships. Secrets, silence, and isolation can become the devil's playground. Secrets become one of the most deadly forces hell can use against us. The phrase, you are as sick as your secrets, applies to a marriage relationship and all relationships. And the devil will do his best to keep secrets, silence, and isolation in them. Okay, so full disclosure, I had this great idea as I was preparing this message today. I was planning to do this message from my house or my office and zoom it in and put it on these screens here. Why? Because I thought, well, it would be a good example of how isolation and, and if I did it from my office or my home, you would see this great visual of how we, especially us guys, isolate from our wives. However, I realized I was actually hiding a fear about doing a message in front of live people. And my fear of public speaking would be covered up. I would be able to achieve that goal of communicating in a very interesting and creative way, but it was actually hiding 
and isolating. And that was probably a better example for you today about how isolating can creep in to a relationship, and in this case, our relationship. So what are we called to do in our marriage relationship regarding the devil? We are called into a battle. And in that graphic I had, is had, we are to fight. However, it's not a battle we do in our own strength. We need to be united and together with God. So he is the ultimate conqueror. Jesus died on the cross for us, and we can stand firm in him and find that victory. Ephesians 6, which I prayed uh, this morning, talks about standing firm and putting on the armor of God. Now I'm going to mention the world. The world has become the enemy's playground as well. And is used as another force to destroy and affect sexual intimacy. And it started in the fall. In the Garden of Eden, we'd refer to it, when Adam and Eve sinned, they broke relationship with God. And one of the consequences is that the world was given over to Satan, to the devil. And we see this in multi-billion dollar industries, which include the pornography industry, as an example. It destroys and distorts true sexuality between a husband and wife. And it can lure, like a baited hook, people into addictions and other forms of brokenness. We must admit that our current world is saturated and sexualized like no other time in modern history, though we know that this has occurred over many, many centuries as well. We are called to forsake the world. And in 1 John 2, 15 and 17, it says, do not love the world and anything of the world. The world and its desires will pass away, but the man who does the will of God will live forever. And now this third force, our body, the flesh, is another force that can come and oppose God's design for sexuality and sexual intimacy. 1 Corinthians 6.8 says, flee from sexual immorality and all other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against his own body. Sexual sin is different than other sins according to this verse. Sexual sin occurs in the body while other sins occur outside the body. Now some experts in sexual addiction have called sexual addiction an intimacy disorder or an intimacy deficiency. And if we look at the science of the brain, neuroscience, it explains something the Bible has been telling us for a long time. There is something that occurs in our brains physically that causes us to be trapped in sexual bondage. Without going into more detail about what happens in our brain, to become addicted sexually, I would say sexual addiction is more than just a moral issue. It is a moral issue. It starts as that. But it becomes even more in, embedded in our brains, in us. Sexual addiction and even other addictions can greatly impact our brains, and we need a process of renewal and retraining by the power of the Holy Spirit 
to find healing from this type of bondage. Romans 12, 2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And you can learn more about sexual addiction, how we can find healing from it, if you want to come to a class called Sexual Integrity 101, which I'm actually doing right now, we offer that in the church to learn more about that. So how do we restore sexual intimacy and find healing in our marriage relationship? There is so much to learn about healthy intimacy in marriage and in other relationships. And I couldn't start or begin to tell you all the things. But that's why we offer classes and groups that create a safe and caring community to learn and grow together in our journey of healing and restoration. It, it's core to what I have been doing a lot in the last couple of years, and I want to encourage you to consider these types of courses or groups that can help you in your journey. So in summary, I would like to reinforce the importance of cultivating sexual intimacy and healthy intimacy with your spouse by strengthening your relationship with each other and allowing the Holy Spirit to enhance the oneness of God in your marriage. Be aware of the tactics of the devil to attack your relationship and they are isolation, secrecy, and silence. I encourage you to find ways to strengthen your communication and your conflict resolution abilities so that you can foster that relationship, that intimacy and openness. Seek help if you are stuck in your relationship and you can't seem to understand each other. We see, and I think Anthony has alluded to this, we see people come into our office after months and years of struggle. If you are stuck, come see us and we will try and help you in that regard. Develop safe relationships with peers, with mentors and friends who can speak love and grace in your life. Spend more time with your Abba Father God to hear his loving voice and learn about his, your identity. Identity in Christ is important as you are his beloved son and daughter. And spend time each day together as a couple in prayer and reflection. Um, this is something that Laurel and I have been doing a lot more intentional. And it's been a great help in our relationship because it's built intimacy and oneness in our life. Uh, I will end by sharing one very specific group that Laurel and I would like to invite you to come as a spouse you and your spouse. It's, called, uh, it's a group called Stronger Together. It's a five-week online video hosted by Dr. Doug Weiss. He's an expert in marriage and sexual restoration. And we're going to start this group in uh, 
this coming Friday, very quickly, November 20th, using Zoom. We want to invite you to join us. Here's a short video that tells you more about it. Killing and destroying Christian marriages all across the world. It felt like he loved other people more than he loved his own family because he knew how to please, but he didn't know how to show true intimacy. Pleasing is different. It's the spouse that starves. It causes death at the other end of the relationship. To be intimate, it means you have to let me in mentally, spiritually, and physically. It means I have access to you. You can't be intimate with a dominant person. They don't want intimacy. They want control. If both people are willing to face their past, face their present, there is redemption for every single marriage. God doesn't expose something he doesn't want to heal. He wants to heal this in all the church of Jesus Christ so that we look more like him. If we'll get honest, if we'll get real, Christ can help transform our heart, our love, our affection, and begin to shift that. Are you their lover? Do you pursue their heart? Do you pursue them physically? Do you care about their emotions? Western Christians want the miracle, which means we want God to compensate for our years of irresponsibility in a moment. You don't need a miracle where you're being responsible. Focusing on how can I grow? How can I change? How can I mature? How can I develop me? Is the most excruciating, gut-wrenching hard work we will ever do. But marriage is intended to cause us to do that. Okay, we're going to now transition into our communion time. And again, I'd like to uh, invite any of you couples interested. We're keeping this group very small, so four or five couples, if it's interest to you. But for communion, I'd ask the elders who will pray to come forward. And if you didn't receive um, the elements when you came in, if you could put your hand up. I think uh, Dallas is going back to fetch that. If you could put your hand up, you haven't received the elements when you came in, then we'll make sure you have those. I guess I need them too. <laughs> um, I think it's significant that we participate in communion today to remember that communion is actually a reminder of what God did for us through his death and resurrection. Communion affirms our relationship with God and symbolizes to us that we are one with God through Jesus Christ. If you have made a commitment to receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then please feel free to participate in the communion with us. The bread we eat represents the body of Christ who was sacrificed and died on the cross for us sinners because we need a savior like Jesus. And the juice represents the blood of Jesus who died on the cross for them, for you and me, and symbolizes the cleansing of our sins. If you are comfortable, because we've talked about marriage, I'd ask that couples at, here and at home consider holding each other's hand during the communion time. And Reflect on your relationship, thank you, with God, and ask God to strengthen your marriage relationship. So now I'll ask the elders 
to pray for the elements. Father in heaven, this small piece of bread represents how great you are, represents what you did for us by suffering on the cross, the beating, the brutality that was done into your body, and yet, Lord, you are alive today, and we praise you for that. Bless this bread, and Lord, that uh, we would rep it represents you, and may, Lord, it, it draw us closer to you as we reflect on what you did for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's partake. Pray for the cup. Lord Jesus, we want to thank you today for your suffering, that you went to the cross for our sins, and that you loved us first and gave your life for us. We want you to know, Lord, we love you because you first loved us and made the greatest sacrifice ever made. We think of the separation that took place between you and your father, and you said that he had forsaken you. And Lord, we have no idea what that was like for the separation that took place, but we thank you that you made the sacrifice for us. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you'd help us in every way to live a life that is pleasing to you a life that never forgets the blood that was shed on the cross. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Partake. Thank you. I'd uh, like just to give a quick benediction. Um, I think of Romans, or sorry, Numbers 6, 24, which is a very common blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord keep his face, make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord turn his face upon you and give you peace. Amen. As you leave today, just, you know, nine months ago, roughly, I stood up here and asked and shared with you about what we're, the days we're in. And I don't think a lot has changed in some ways. What I had said eight months ago, same as this right now, is I just pray that you will take care of yourself and be safe and continue to love others, your neighbor. And as you go out, I know these next couple weeks in particular are going to be a challenge, but I know that as we seek the Lord, he will give us strength to be a loving witness during these days. Go in peace. Thanks.